Let's turn together to Matthew 12. We'll start in verse 38. The word said, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation ask for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept, clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside waiting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your words are life, but they aren't life simply because they are read or they exist on paper in a bookshelf in our homes. They are life when in the hearing there is understanding, and in the understanding there is a transformation of our lives, a change, a response, a doing of what you said. So enable us by your Spirit to do that today. And may these words have that effect in Jesus' name. Amen. A professor of philosophy reportedly said that he would believe in God to his students. If the heavens opened and a magnificent figure appeared, declaring in a very loud voice, I am God. My question is, if that did happen, exactly what would he believe in? He might start attending worship services somewhere, but which one? Would he start fulfilling the radical call of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? I'd say that would be quite doubtful. Would God appearing as a magnificent figure in the sky lead anyone to fulfill the radical call of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Would God appearing in the sky, declaring I am God, have caused the rich man to think, you know, I need to go sell everything I have, give to the poor and follow Jesus? Doubtful. The problem in our text with the wicked generation that Jesus is addressing is that they have seen Jesus' miracles, they have heard his teaching, but they have not changed their lives. 
In order to do that, they want a sign. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you, says the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Jesus answers, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Don't ask for a sign. That would make you part of the wicked and adulterous generation, would it not? But what if, what, what if we are already asking for a sign and don't know it? What might that look like? Many Christians read the Gospels, and whether it is a Sermon on the Mount with its rigorous demands, or if it's uh, Jesus telling somebody to go sell everything they have and give to the poor, or saying that if anyone wants to follow me, he must give up everything he has and follow me. And they think, I'm sure glad Jesus didn't say that to me. What would it take then? What would it take for us to think that Jesus was talking to us? That we should do what he said. In other words, are we already asking for a sign? Are we already saying, well, if I had a sign that Jesus really wanted me to do this, then I would. Is not this text for us also? And not just for Pharisees. Stanley Hauerwas says, We cannot help but be sympathetic with the request for a sign. Jesus asked much of those who would follow him, and it does not seem unreasonable to be given some assurance. Yet, we must remember the devil asked Jesus for signs in the desert. You see, we're sympathetic to this request for a sign because we want one too. I mean, if I'm really going to go all out and obey Jesus, I, I want something to assure me that that's the right thing to do. Because frankly, if you read the Sermon on the Mount again, you'll note that it seems like in so many ways just so contrary to what we think naturally to do. Maybe the only sign we will receive is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a, literally, a sea creature. Could be Red Sea Monster, but you know, who knows? Sea creature, we'll just go with that. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What does it mean to get that sign? The question that today's text puts before us is whether or not we are part of the wicked and adulterous generation that seeks such a sign before we do what Jesus says. That's the question the text puts before us. We'll explore our text under three headings. First, the idolatrous generation. Second, the unoccupied generation. And thirdly, the occupied generation. First, the idolatrous generation. And this is in verses 30 through, 38 through 40. Let's read that text again. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish or a sea creature, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
Our knee-jerk reaction to the Pharisees' request is to see the unreasonableness of asking for a sign in light of Jesus' miracle-working ministry. We think, well, what, what more do they need? Now, in the previous scene in which Jesus had healed the man experiencing the triple threat of life-destroying effects, we looked at two Sundays ago. By the way, thank you, Peter, for that outstanding message last Sunday. Don and I heard it on our way back from North Carolina yesterday morning. It was quite, quite uh, helpful. Excellent. Um, but in that scene, two weeks ago, this man was healed that was, was demonized. He was blind. He was deaf and mute. I mean, he had the triple threat of life-destroying forces at work in him. And that's, that healing makes plain that the Pharisees are wrong for assigning Jesus' work to demons, to Satan. But was it a sign? Were Jesus' healings a sign? Not to them they weren't. It, it was not uncommon in that day when someone claimed to be a prophet or even somebody had healing powers and did things that the, the uh, leadership of the people would demand a sign from them, a, some proof from them. And a sign did not include healings. It could be one of two things. A sign could be a predicted event that came to pass, so something they could have no idea could ha- was going to happen, they predict that it will happen, and then it comes to pass. And you see that in the Old Testament as one of the tests of a prophet. Uh, if, they, if, if they predict it and it doesn't come to pass, they were false prophets and, so, and, and vice versa. The second thing was something quite unusual happening in the heavens, something like that professor wanted in the introduction, right? Some magnificent event, maybe stars moving, maybe some meteor thing that was, was done to demonstrate this. In, in, in chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees asked for a sign from heaven. No, they had from heaven. So they're, they're looking for a particular kind of sign, one from heaven there. The wise men in chapter 2 of Matthew's gospel did see a sign from heaven, did they not? And they followed it, and they discovered the Messiah. What is at the root of the Pharisees and teachers of the law? I'll just keep referring to them as Pharisees for shorthand, but, but they're together here. What, what is at the root of their demand for a sign? Well, they're an adulterous generation. Now, when you read adulterous, you need to think idolatrous. So when you read adulterous, think idolatrous. In calling them an adulterous generation, Jesus is not speaking about romantic activity. That they are having affairs on their spouse. That is not what he's speaking about when he says that. Um, The prophet spoke metaphorically of Israel being adulterous because they had forsaken their husband, which was Yahweh, and were having a relationship with the idols of the nation. So, adulterous generation is speaking about their idolatry, their affair with other gods. Idolatry. What idols were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law pursuing in place of God? That's the question it should cause us to ask. What idols are they pursuing in the place of God? Does Matthew's gospel, that would be the first place we should look, does Matthew's gospel give us any clues? Matthew 6, 24 does. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money.
Then in Matthew 16, when they demanded a sign from heaven, after repeating the statement about a wicked and adulterous generation that we have in our text, Jesus proceeds to tell the disciples to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees. Their teaching stands in direct opposition to Jesus' teaching. Jesus taught us how to relate to the poor, to the mourning, the lowly, those experiencing injustice. He, he taught us a generosity that wasn't afraid of for tomorrow and didn't judge, judge the recipient of our generosity. The Pharisees likely spoke about helping the poor, but only for the, quote, deserving poor. And then, of course, they made the rules of who was deserving and who was not. Be careful when we start making those delineations. Finally, in Matthew 23, Jesus begins a diatribe against the adulterous generation. This gets toward the end of Jesus' ministry, right before the crucifixion. And he speaks against this adulterous generation and identifies their wickedness as greed and self-indulgence. Well, I'm sure glad we don't have those idols anymore. Oh, wait. <laughs> I thought for a moment I'd been translated to another time and place. <laughs> you see, greed and self-indulgence kept the Pharisees focusing on the outside of the cup and dish and not on the inside. They, they, they were perfected at having clean hands but impure hearts. Jesus wants us to have pure hearts, but then he models for us what it looks like to, have, to be willing to get our hands dirty. The Pharisees in question practiced religion in a way that protected their position and power as the first priority. It was primarily the Jerusalem group of Pharisees and teachers of the law that are uh, involved here. The, the, the ones further out would not have been as engaged in that, and they weren't as powerful. But these guys would run Jesus down wherever he was to try to keep their power in play. They were, maybe not unlike those groups uh, that developed a theology that justified, for instance, in our own country, the holding of slaves in America and even Europe. Nor unlike those who condoned the requirement of a separate communion table during the apartheid regime in South Africa, which was anathema to God. Yet this group of people has to eat, take communion here. This group can take it here, separating the communion table. There's nothing that could be more cursed to do with the Lord's table. But justified theologically. On a more personal level, the question for us is, are there ways that we nuance our theology to protect our position, to protect our bank accounts, to keep our hands clean? Beware of the yeast of this adulterous generation. And I mean this one that we live in. What is the sign of Jonah, the unseen sign of Jonah, as I'll call it? Well, it's the only sign that will be given to the idolatrous or adulterous generation. Craig Keener observes, I, 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 without thinking about it, initially wrote Craig Keener, keenly observed, but I thought maybe I shouldn't read, you know. But, yeah, good call. So, Craig Keener observes <laughs> that the Ninevites did not personally witness Jonah's resuscitation, his coming out of that well, that sea creature, that fish, whatever you want to call it, after the experience that he had. 
And they didn't see it. They didn't get him, see him getting thrown off the ship. They didn't see him come out of the water. They didn't see any of that. And we don't have any evidence that he ever told them about it. In fact, he would have been probably very disinclined to do so. What we do have is Jonah, who was reluctant to preach to the Ninevites, lest they repent. He didn't want them to repent and be forgiven. And Pharisees now, who are upset because Jesus is opening up his table to the poor, the lame, the blind, the lowly, etc. The, the Pharisees won't witness the resurrection either. Jesus appeared only to his disciples and and, and yeah, some 500 of them at one point, but he did not appear to the unbelieving people. I mean, if you, if you think that, that, that proving that Jesus was raised from the dead somehow scientifically is going to get people saved, well, it certainly was not God's methodology. He could have done that, and he chose not to. He only revealed himself resurrected to those who believed. See, the other would be more akin to that sign in the sky. What would they actually believe in? Jesus is predicting his death and resurrection, a sign, one that they won't see. They'll see his death, they won't see his resurrection. And in Jonah 2, that part about Jonah being in the belly of the sea creature for three days and three nights, that's the low point of the story, not the high point of the story. The sign of Jonah... And the sign of the Son of Man in the heart of the earth are signs of weakness. They will see Jesus do ministry among the needy. They, they will see Jesus crucified in weakness. And they will have to see that sign if they are to be saved from that perverse generation. See, back in the beginning of chapter 11, when John sent his disciples to ask Jesus questions, he answered them with quotations out of the book of Isaiah. He's essentially sent John back to the scriptures to reevaluate what he expected in the Messiah. What does Jesus do to these Pharisees? He sends them back to the scriptures, the sign of Jonah. He sends them back to Jonah chapter 2. And in Jonah chapter 2, they can see the weakness of God that's being demonstrated because of God's mercy to save the Ninevites. Here's God's prophet swallowed by a fish, drowning in his troubles. And yet God will rescue him in order to send him in to those that need to be rescued by the mercy of God. The God who comes to show mercy on his enemies. This is no nationalistic God. He is the most unlikely of gods. If they see that, they will recognize the cross for what it is. That leads us to the second point, which is the unoccupied generation. Read with me in verse number 41. The unoccupied generation. The, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For, if they, for, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is more magnificent than Jonah. Now, earlier in this same uh, section, in this chapter, we're told that Jesus is greater than the temple. It was up earlier in chapter 12. 
Now we're told that he's greater than Jonah, who was a prophet, and then greater than Solomon, who was one of the wisdom writers. I mean, certainly you see in the temple the law. You've got Jonah and the prophets, and you've got Solomon, the wisdom literature. Jesus is greater than all of that. Greater than all of that. Now, it's important to recognize that when we say that Jesus is greater than something, that doesn't mean that the other is yeah, like the stuff you just sold at your last yard sale, very unimportant. Well, to be greater than the stuff you sold at your last garage sale might mean you're just ready for the next garage sale. I mean, it's not that important. But, but if, if, if the law, the prophets, and the wisdom writings are very important, but Jesus is still greater, well, that says a lot now, doesn't it? But I digress. Jesus is more significant than Jonah, who was a prophet. Jonah is the reluctant prophet. Jonah fled from the Father's will because he didn't want the Ninevites to receive mercy. Jesus obeyed the Father all the way to the point of death in order to bring us mercy. He's definitely greater than Jonah. Just as in Jonah, the Gentiles have already begun responding to Jesus' message. The Ninevites will rise up in judgment against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now that seems absurd, but why? Why will they? Because they repented. They changed their lives. Not at a sign, but at the preaching of Jonah. They never saw the sign. They changed their lives at the preaching of Jonah. Jonah did none of the works of mercy that Jesus had. No healings, no demons driven out. In fact, he didn't even want to be there. And they repented. But the Ninevites changed their lives. How have you and I responded to the teaching and preaching of Jesus? Oh, but we don't get to hear the preaching of Jesus. Oh, but yes, we do. The Sermon on the Mount. Are we changing our lives like the Ninevites? Jesus is more significant than the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, as she's otherwise known. She came a great, at a great cost to hear Solomon's wisdom to herself. Solomon was a great king in Israel, the son of David, that would build God's house, meaning the physical temple. But Jesus is greater than Solomon. Jesus doesn't have the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God that rescues us, saves us, restores us to what we were created for. Jesus is greater than Solomon because he will build God's house on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building joined together rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God dwells by his spirit. In other words, Jesus is building the true temple of God, the people of God, a living temple. All of this leads to a parable that has, at least in my experience, been used to teach what it has nothing to do with. I started to think, say my limited experience, but then I remembered my age. Realized that maybe I've got a little bit more. <laughs> I've heard this, this verse talked about a lot. None of it had anything to do with, with what it's actually about. So let's explore it afresh. Read with me in verses 43 through 45. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through, through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and 
takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Now, did Jesus stop there? Or is he still talking in the parable? Still talking. But we always stop there and we explain it as if that's where it ended. And we we get it wrong because we don't take into account the next line. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. You see, if we stop after the final condition of that person is worse than the first and don't include that last line, we miss a very important point. In order to help you see it, let me tell you what this text is not about, what this parable is not about. Jesus was not talking about what happens to an individual when a demon is cast out of them. This text does not have anything to say about individuals. It's speaking about a generation, a group of people. Okay? Secondly, it's not about what happens when someone backslides. I mean, volumes have been written from this text about what happens when you become a Christian, but then later backslide, how at the end of your life can be seven times worse than the first. It has nothing to do with that. How do you know? Because it's right there in the text. Just read the text. Jesus is talking about that wicked generation and their response to his teaching and preaching. He was not talking about individuals, but a group of people, a large group of people, not our individualistic universe. It is difficult to even conceive of God dealing with us as a group of people, but he does. You see, the Pharisees never believed in Jesus. They never followed Jesus, but he's talking about them. They are that wicked generation that seeks for a sign. They came asking for a sign. He immediately calls them a wicked and adulterous generation asking for a sign. And then he gives this parable and says, it's about that wicked generation. So, first off, we have to ask the question, how was the house clean to begin with? According to the Associated Press in Hagar Township, Michigan. Amazing. I I want to identify that it wasn't near here, just so you're not worried. But nearly 80 dogs and cats were removed from a filthy home. That's their wording. To say the least, Berrien County Animal Control Director Tiffany Peterson says, floors at that home in that town were mushy due to urine and feces when authorities went there this week and and in all they found 66 dogs and 11 cats a woman was living in the home now the house was occupied and needed cleaning out occupied with a woman and all her demons i mean pets <clears throat> it, it needs some serious cleaning out but to merely clean it is only half the process. It won't switch from being a kennel to a home, which was what it was made to be, until other things happen that make it a home. Some other things need to take place there. How was the demon in the parable exercised from, quote, the man? It's literally the man. The man is representative. He's a personification of the wicked generation, as we discover at the end of the parable. So how was the demon exercised from this group of people that the Pharisees and teachers of the law are a big part of and all those who follow their teaching? How was the demon exercised from them? Well, I think a guy in the 4th century had it right. His name was Hillary. I know today that's mostly a woman's name, but it was a guy. His name was Hillary. 
Um, and he was bishop of a place called Portiers or something like that. And, and he suggested that the law is what drove the demon out and cleaned them up. And I think he's right. That the law drove the demon out. That cleaned up the Pharisees in their lives. The Jewish people had been cleaned up. And the Pharisees were intent on making sure that people had clean lives. But then the demon returns. He finds these people all cleaned up by the law, but not occupied with the purpose of the law, which is mercy. Chapter 12, verse 7, same chapter, just back up. Mercy. The Pharisees' lives were all cleaned up, neat and tidy, put in order, but still unoccupied. It is not the law that was the problem, but their complete misapplication of the law that was the problem. And then it says in verse 44, he finds the house, which is the people of that generation, unoccupied. Unoccupied. Unoccupied, which is the NIV 2011 does that, uses that. It's the best translation of the word because, only reason, because it captures a not uncommon wordplay that was present in the original language. There's a pun going on here, a double entendre, if you will, going on here, and and. That word can mean both unoccupied in the same sense of empty, or in the sense of empty like we use it, it's unoccupied, it's empty, and in the sense of idle, not working, lazy, somebody's unoccupied. Their word had the same double meaning as our word, unoccupied. And it was used that way to kind of speak of people who were lazy from time to time. I think that this wordplay is intended because of the immediate context and because of Matthew's gospel as a whole. Now, this is important because this, see, this text was not written to teach you about demonology. This text was written to tell you about how you should live your life. And if we get focused on demonology, we may never get its message, and that's important to get its message. Amen? So stay with me a moment. You'll see in the next section that this wicked generation here will be contrasted with another generation. The family of Jesus. Those who do the will of the Father. They're not unoccupied. They're occupied. Doing the will of the Father. Remember, Matthew's gospel begins with the Sermon on the Mount. And that that ends with telling us how important it is that we do the will of the Father or put into practice the teaching of Jesus, which are... One and the same. And this gospel ends with the Great Commission, which says, teaching them to do everything I have commanded you. We need to be occupied. The Pharisees are not exempt from the essential response to Jesus. They, too, must do what he says. Therefore, they have become the false prophets, since they aren't doing what he says, of chapter 7, verse 15, who bear bad fruit rather than good. Their lives are all neat and tidy, swept clean, and everything is in order. Completely in order. Clean hands are their forte, but they're unoccupied. Empty, yes, but unoccupied because they're not doing what Jesus said. Repentance, which is doing what Jesus said, is the proper response to Jesus' message. And they are not doing it. Their lives are all neat and orderly. But you see, being a disciple is not about having lives that are all neat and orderly, tidied up. Remember, Jesus says to his disciples, you give them something to eat. When they themselves were hungry and tired, you go give them something to eat. My generation confused being a disciple 
with having flushed bank accounts, no debts, read no poverty, and obedient children, which are all fine things, by the way. But they aren't particularly relevant to the issue at hand of follow, being a follower of Jesus. This generation, the current generation, has substituted minimalistic living and being green, which are also good things. But again, what are we called to be occupied with? We can have neat and tidy lives. We can have everything in order. But if we're not occupied doing the will of the Father, we'll be found empty. So that leads us to our third and final section, which is the occupied generation. Read with me in verse 46. While Jesus was still uh, talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I could have titled this one the occupied family because it's speaking of the family of Jesus. But in early chapter 1 of Matthew Describing Jesus' family line, it refers to the generation. So I think they're close enough, and it works with my, 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 my three points to have generation. So there you go. Matthew here, unlike Mark, he doesn't really include any comment about the status of Jesus' natural family other than they're standing outside. Mark, you know, implies that there's some negative things going on there. But Matthew's not focused on that. He's not caring about that. Um, the family here in this scene is merely a prop so that Jesus can make his point. The point is that there is a generation that is occupied with something. A family that is an alternative to this world's. We must be a part of this alternative occupied generation if we are to escape the wrath due the wicked generation. This occupied generation is Jesus' true family. It can include the poor, the lame, the blind. None of those things are hindrances to being a part of the occupied generation. What's the one qualifier? Surprisingly, it is not a firm grasp on all the right doctrines, as important as that is. It's doing the will of the Father. You see, orthodoxy must lead to orthopraxy if we're going to be a part of Jesus' family. Orthodoxy is right worship and includes the idea of right doctrine, right teaching, that's wonderful. That's important. But that without orthopraxy, right practice, is meaningless. But that leads us to the question, then, what is the occupied generation occupied with? Doing the will of my Father in heaven. In verse 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see, money can't buy your way in. Status can't buy your way in. A cute smile and a wink will get you nowhere. This generation which is doing the will of the Father does not have lives which are swept clean and put in order. Those who can't stand anything out of place are really going to have to put preferences to death because the occupied life is a messy life. The occupied life is a messy life. You're going to get your hands dirty. Whatever demons have been driven out of this community, our community, if they return, the question is, 
will they find the house occupied or unoccupied? And I'm using that play on words. Not many stay-at-home moms with small children, especially the more they have, have homes that are all clean and tidy. Why? Because their houses are not empty. They're rather occupied. And when the husband comes home, and I am not comparing him to the demon in the story. (laughs) Be be, be clear, just a little parable of my own. That husband does not find her unoccupied and everything in order. He finds that she's been quite occupied and very little is in order sometimes. Hello? And the husband's favorite question, I mean, I'm again, not comparing him to that demon, but his favorite question is, what have you been doing all day? <laughs> She'd like to say, I'd like to show you. <laughs> mm. You stay home a day or two yourself and see what it's like. And when they do, they go, oh, I'll never say that again, right? <laughs> when a demon returns to check on the status of professing believers in America, will they find us occupied, busy doing what Jesus said? If not, is that why? Is, is that why we have pastors after decades of ministry being fired on account of inappropriate relationships, abuses of power? Is this the seven more demons worse than himself coming back to haunt us? Could it be because Jesus isn't interested in using his name to maintain people's power and little fiefdoms, but to do the will of the Father? Listen, the church is not a place for a pastor's little fiefdom, any more than the temple was a place for the Pharisees' little fiefdom. It is not the purpose that it exists for. Ezekiel rebuked the leaders of his day, of the people of God, in saying that they have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured because they have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost but ruled them harshly and brutally. The Pharisees are not occupied strengthening the weak, healing the sick, or binding up the injured. They are unoccupied, clean, and tidy, and they're getting all over Jesus because he is occupied doing that. True shepherds do the will of the Father. Ezekiel tells us what that is as well in verse 16 of chapter 34. It says, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. That's the will of the Father for shepherds. And if we don't take it seriously... And if we don't take Jesus' teaching seriously, which teaches us how to do that in the Sermon on the Mount, then we too, me too, could be headed for the same outcome. Let's not be found unoccupied. Amen? Church leaders and members need more than accountability groups. We need to to bind up the brokenhearted to strengthen the weak and heal the sick and the injured. And if we do not, no accountability group can protect us from an end worse than our original unsaved condition. From the return of one plus seven demons. By the way, people often refer to that as an outcome that's seven times worse than the original. And I'm always thinking, like, that shouldn't do math for a living because that doesn't really work out. If a demon goes to get seven more demons worse than himself, well, even if they were the same, it would be eight times worse. Just run the math there. And if they're worse than any, what's Jesus saying? Exponentially worse. 
exponentially worse. Well, let me just close with a couple of thoughts here. The call of this text. When I say the call of this text, I mean its claim upon your life. What it's calling you and I to do. Because see, these things aren't just written here for our entertainment or enlightenment. They're written to call us to a life, to something, to follow Jesus somehow. That's what this text is here for. And the call of, of this text is not to zero in on demonology, nor to focus on the Pharisees. It is to make sure that we, as a community, are occupied with doing the will of the Father, putting into practice the teaching of Jesus. That's the call and the claim of this text. We heard from Carol Alexander at Next Step. Carol is occupied. Carol is occupied. She's been occupied for how many years now, Carol? 26 years down there, as long as we've been a church. She's been occupied down there. Pete's occupied. Jenny's occupied. So many of you, Susan, occupied. Listen, your lives are going to get occupied, but it's not just out there in the city. It's right here in this community. There are people who need your involvement in their lives, and you're going to get occupied, and your house won't be so clean, tidy, and neat anymore. Because you're not going to have time for all of that. You're going to be like that stay-at-home mom with six kids going, oh my goodness, when am I getting to the dishes? Clean hearts? Eh, not so clean hands. That's the call of Jesus. That's the call that he has for this church. But if we're waiting for a sign from heaven, before we start living in the radical love that Christ calls us to, we'll be a wicked generation instead. That will be found unoccupied, lives all clean and tidy, and our last condition will be worse than before we were awakened to the things of God. Let's not be that generation. Amen? Amen. I believe God has better things for us. If we're going to do the will of the Father, we'll be occupied. And thank God, even though our lives are not very clean and tidy, the last condition will be so much better than the first. So much better. Let's pray. Well, Father, Lord, this text calls us to self-assessment for some that have maybe had just a, a little too much order in their lives and won't let the needs of others in. And it also has the does the work of commending those whose lives have been filled with mess because they are not unoccupied. They are rather quite occupied serving others. Oftentimes they feel condemned because their lives aren't in order like everybody expects. I pray that you would use this text to encourage and strengthen them. And for all of us as a community, that we would find ways to come together to become that occupied family of Jesus, that occupied generation. Because that is what this text is about, is what it means to be the true family of Jesus, doing the will of the Father, putting into practice the teachings of Jesus, living out repentance. In Jesus' name. Amen.